Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. And welcome back to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm joined by co-host Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, man? Hi, Jamie. How's it going? I'm doing very well, and I am especially excited for our episode today because we're talking to one of the teachers that I follow really closely. So it's going to be a great podcast, I think. Yeah, today's exciting. Today, our guest is, of course, Daniel Ingram. Daniel is a medical physician, the author of a number of excellent meditation books, and he's the founder of Meditation Social Network Group the Dharma Overground, and more recently, the leader of an exciting new research group, the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium. Daniel, hey man, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? Very good. Thank you for being here. It's great to chat to you. And there's lots to get through, so I'm going to jump straight in. Today, we want to speak mostly about the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium. Now, its stated mission, this is the interesting thing, is to bring together clinical, scientific, and spiritual paradigms to improve clinical outcomes. So you've said, and I'm quoting, that most people doing emergent practices and other activities likely to yield emergent phenomena have little idea of the full range of experiences and effects, both good and bad, that these practices may produce. So I have to ask off the bat, when you talk about emergent phenomena and emergent practices, what do you mean? In terms of like what are emergent phenomena or what are we calling emergent phenomena, what most people would think of as spiritual, mystical, magical, psychedelic, energetic phenomena. So first to sort of broaden it out into those kinds of categories, this can actually encompass an extremely wide range from curious physical effects like muscle tensions and movements to perceptual effects like suddenly feeling your body vibrating rather than being solid existential effects, changes in the sense of who one is or is not. These are experiences and and paradigmatic shifts that people can go through, as well as, you know, experiences at each of the sense modalities from seeing lights or images to hearing things, voices, songs, music, smelling things, incense, other strange sensations, odd, curious distortions of perception, even if there isn't anything obviously new added to it, the sense of the body dissolving through the floor or rising into the air or going to other dimensions or full-on experiences of contact with other entities of various forms, and then all kinds of other stuff. That's sort of a short list. The the longer list would be a lot more, but that hopefully will give us something to talk about in terms of a, a conversation. And obviously, these, for people who are not expecting them, can be pretty weird, right? And sometimes very disconcerting and sometimes lead to them interacting with the healthcare system. And that's where things can get complicated because in the list of groups that don't really know much about these, the healthcare, mainstream healthcare system and mental health system, unfortunately, falls in that category. So we aim to help them to know more about these things that will lend value to care and help the public as well. Yeah, it sounds spooky, right? When, when you think about how mainstream medicine is going to interact with that spookiness, it's not a massive surprise the people run into trouble. And therefore, it's not a massive surprise that something like the EPRC is needed. Obviously, people can have these experiences through emergent practices. That's what we're calling them. What is an emergent practice? 
So again, this is one of these big sort of baskety categories that is everything from prayer and contemplation of spiritual and existential and philosophical truths to meditation, psychedelics, various forms of retreat, intense exercise, sensory deprivation, float tanks, psychedelics. There's all kinds of situations that intentionally might lead to these where people doing yoga or qigong or various movementy sorts of practices, sleep deprivation, fasting. There's all kinds of ways that people have traditionally and in contemporary times attempted to get into these, right? So you have the intentional practices. And then you have the unintentional things like during birth, during intense experiences, during periods where attention is extremely highly trained on some situations, such as even in wartime or even intense sports or coming down from space. There are a number of astronauts that have reported this coming down out of space. So various situations that, that bring people far outside themselves, like, you know, people go to Burning Man within a few days can seem utterly different than how they were before, for example, even if they aren't partaking of large amounts of plant-based and synthetic substances. Yeah, Mark, what's the thing about becoming accident-prone? Yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, if, if part of what we're doing on the mat with these different practices is we're opening ourselves to a new way of experiencing, I've heard some people say before that sometimes that can just accidentally happen. I mean, you don't necessarily have to be practicing for years to have some of these spooky emergent phenomena occur. For some practitioners, you know, they practice in order to make themselves accident prone in a way where you make yourself, you put yourself in the best possible position for some of these emergent phenomena to take place. It can even cross way out of the realm of accident and into the realm of intention. Like, Indeed. you know, it is, a lot of these are learnable things that you can learn to get into with mastery. So in a sense of competence and predictability to them, rather than as accident, you can move from accident into competence and from competence into mastery and just make these things just part of what one can do or experience. One of the things that sort of comes up for me just hearing you speak is human experience is so wide. I mean, mm -hmm. there are so many weird and wonderful ways that we can experience our bodies and our space and who we are and what we are. And those are all going to come to different degrees by these sorts of emergent practices. But the emergent practices list you just gave us is huge. I mean, you included in their prayer and exercise and yoga. And of course, today, you know, we, lots of people are doing meditation. Lots of people are doing yoga. But I don't know how often we're talking to experts who know what emergent phenomena is all about and how to navigate the space of emergent phenomena, even though, you know, you may be engaging with practices that are going to be those kinds of things that pump or generate those sort of emergent phenomena. So that seemed to me like a potential sort of perfect storm. We've got lots of these practices. We're attracted to these practices because something in us is calling us to be doing these kinds of practices. And then there is this probably inevitable to some degree, different emergent phenomenology, but with not as, well, at least I don't think, we don't have a very good conversation open right now. At least it's not very popular to be talking about this sort of emergent phenomenology. Yeah, it's definitely true. And that's a real problem. So I think that if you're going to scale these things ethically, you have to have a healthcare system, and particularly a mental health system, that has a relatively sophisticated understanding of these, and not just of the common unusual things that can happen, but some of the rare things that can happen. Because right. like, let's say you taught meditation to say 1.2 million children in a public school system somewhere, right. if only, you know, one in a hundred thousand, let's say you say these things are that rare. Well, you're, you know, you're still talking about 12 kids or whatever, which is a non-trivial number to get That's into right. strange territory. 
And right. so, you know, just like in medicine, we study all these very rare things. We, you know, we studied hundreds of conditions that I never even saw after seeing 60,000 patients. And yeah. yet we still, you know, thought we need to know something about those, even if they're quite unusual. I don't think these things are actually that unusual. But even if you argue that they are, just as we list all these rare side effects of what Tylenol, you know, or paracetamol, as you might call it, if you, if you read the fine print of what this can do to you, you'd be like, really? Really? <laughs> you, know, yeah. you might be wary about taking it. But, you know, I take Tylenol. It's generally fine. So in the same kind of way that medicine thinks, well, we should know the minutiae, we should know the rare things, we should know the unusual occurrences, and we should know something about their underlying physiology, you know, what's bad about them, what's good about them. That's the other interesting thing. What are the transformative potentials of these sometimes strange experiences? Because, you know, there are whole religions that are based on the notion that these could some, be some of the most valuable healing and transformative things that there are. And so that, that sort of appreciation of the range of highs, lows, weirds, good, bad, and strange, that's something the clinical mainstream currently lacks. And then the problem is getting them the level of data quality, the epistemological weight of evidence that lets them think, okay, there really is a there there, and we have some functional working understanding of it that we can trust. That's really what the EPRC project is about, you know, raising all the money, finding all the scientists, designing all the studies, taking all the time and doing what we think will be generational level change of an upgrade of, of the healthcare system based on just really high quality science that is not trying to say rah-rah meditation or psychedelics or try to say all the stuff is bad or all it's just crazy, but actually something much more nuanced that, that can handle the good, bad, and the ugly and just look at it in a, in a very neutral, balanced way such that you can really meet the core criteria of medical ethics, which are informed consent. And informed consent means you have high quality data to inform a conversation about risks, benefits, and alternatives. You know, I'm interested in the phenomenology here, because when people have these experiences that are somewhere on the spectrum of good, bad, weird, it might be that it's difficult to have language associated, you know, because we don't commonly describe these things. How are you going about the problem of, okay, people have these experiences, but they're different for me and you, and also you might use totally distinct language that I might? Right. So the linguistic problem, I think, is actually one of the most critical. And so the linguistic considerations, first, just figuring out how to teach people a language of phenomenology. So I think in order to get this right, we're going to have to use existing clinical terms that already exist. And also, I think, stick to relatively simple terms that have very little ontological overlay. So for example, really think carefully about what scales across religious settings, across secular settings. Now, to use an example I use all the time, I don't know what a migraine is. It's something about vasodilation and calcium channels, but I got really good at diagnosing migraines based on clinical presentations and people's simple descriptions of their migraines, which can do all this weird stuff, wiggly lines, perceptual distortions, look like strokes, all this memory changes, personality changes, all this bizarre stuff. And yet, okay, that's probably a migraine. And then, you know, I don't know what it is, but I actually got good at diagnosing and treating it. It's that kind of practical competence that we think we can get in the hands of the public and ordinary clinicians to just figure out, hey, when this weird thing's going on, how do you deal with the strange, the bad, and cultivate the good that might come from it and do that in a very straightforward way. And so even though, you know, and a lot of people have said, even the clinical mainstream clinicians, if they haven't had these experiences, they won't be able to diagnose and manage them. But I've never had a migraine, yet I got pretty good at diagnosing and manage them, I think. So, yeah. It seems like at least half of the work is getting practitioners to have a language, to be able to better articulate the sorts of things that are happening to them. Where do you see, I mean, where does that education come in? I mean, if somebody is coming up to just do a sort of very light sort of mindfulness-based pain reduction 
course, should they already be looking forward to taking a kind of module to be able to discuss emergent phenomenology? Or is this maybe kept aside until people sort of get into their practice in a more deep and more comprehensive way? So the problem is contemporary medical ethics basically mandates that you have should talk about it ahead of time and or should make that information available and even tell people that these are possibilities. Again, like the warning labels in paracetamol or Tylenol, right? So even if it's rare and unusual, we make sure, hey, if you want to actually know what can happen from this, we, we give you that information. We treat you as adults with respect. At the moment, contemporary medical ethics, at least as I was taught it, does not support the notion of hiding the ball, saying, oh, we know best. We're going to make these decisions in sort of a parental way for you, kind of a paternalistic way or maternalistic way. And then we're going to, you know, assume that this is good for you. And yeah, some small portion on a low dose will get into this territory. And yeah, they won't have known anything about it or had the right to give informed consent. But we'll take that as a risk that we think is better because we're making this decision for everybody. And I don't think contemporary medical ethics really supports that. Yeah. Is there a worry here, though, that like being as preemptive as you are in medical ethics in contemporary medical ethics might be predictive of weird experiences. I mean, is it possible that I find out about all this phenomenology that might emerge out of a meditation practice? And then because I kind of have heard of it, slightly induce it or are more likely to run into it? Well, that's actually an extremely interesting hypothesis. And so since we don't know, we don't have definitive studies on the answer to that question, and how much is scripting, how much is expectation, and how much is almost like attunement? Like if you know something's there, maybe you can tune into it. Right. And so which is actually empowering, which is damaging and and how does all that work? Right. So the placebo and nocebo effects of how you describe the positive and negative effects of meditation. This is actually something that I don't think is well studied and is actually a vital question. And so really what I would like is even better than my expert opinion. Right. Because I have this bias towards more information. But that doesn't mean that's the right decision for anybody necessarily. And so what I would actually greatly prefer is what the EPRC hopes to do, is you could actually do those studies, you could put forward the hypothesis, you could have comparative groups where you disclose, you know, all of the stuff it could do, some of the stuff it could do, none of the stuff it could do, and you have people move forward. And you could say, hey, this is the good stuff that comes from that sort of, or the various approaches. This is the bad stuff. And then at least you can do what medical ethics, again, I think mandates it to discuss the risk, benefits, and alternatives of each of those strategies of information disclosure. And then the other angle here is, say you were meditating with some kind of aim at getting mastery over these emergent phenomena. Well, maybe if you know what they are ahead of time, the prediction of them coming actually means you might be more likely to catch them and more likely to develop those skills just because you know what the clues are. That would be my distinct impression. If someone <laughs> said you have to bet right now on which was true, more likely to gain mastery with or without the knowledge of what there is to master and how to master it, I would definitely instantly without question bet high dollars on disclosure of what's possible but not only in potential in terms of the good stuff, but also the bad stuff and also technical strategies for cultivating the good and avoiding the bad, a heads up, you know, ways to tune. And then, of course, I would bet on that as more likely to lead to these things, all things being equal. That doesn't mean that other people without that knowledge can't get into really cool territory. Sometimes they can, but it's like, you know, people can teach themselves how to play the piano or the guitar, but on average, more people are likely to, to gain competence if they're taught, you know, from people who figured out how to do these things beforehand, 
right? So it's not a surprise. But again, this is an important thing to study. So we actually comparing contemplative traditions that give people more or less information and then seeing what those things lead to. Absolutely. This is important. Well, this conversation feels to me like it's leading in a way to think about a, a sort of radical revolution of how we practice and how we practice together and how we think about practice. Because I just can't imagine right now if we're going to include this rich landscape of phenomenology and that, you know, we start by saying it's, it's ethically important that we understand that landscape and that we're with somebody who can help us understand how to navigate that landscape. I don't know how you would do that at a 10-day retreat or at a short course where you're not with the teacher ever again or where you have no ongoing community with wisdom teachers that are available to know you and know your experience as it evolves. I mean, I don't really know how we're going to be able to navigate that rich landscape in the kind of way that meditation is starting to be delivered in these sort of bite-sized pieces that, you know, you just sort of bump in and bump out of. Well, I mean, they're definitely sort of relying on the notion of dose response, that less meditation leads to less weird, right? And I think in general, that's probably true, though, again, it requires more data to be certain of that. But that's been my experience and, and makes some kind of sense. Exactly. You know, obviously there's a wide range of dose response, but you know, I know people who literally on their first sit ever in their life suddenly got into wild, powerful, energetic territory with bolts right. of energy and white light right. shuddering up their spine and radiating right. out into cosmic consciousness. Is it rare? Yes. But does it happen? Yes. Right. And so the thing is, I think just as we have, like in the world of clinical care, you have your regular offices that can handle ordinary stuff, and then you have your urgent cares that can handle some more, and then you have your rural ERs, you know, emergency departments, A&E centers that can handle some more than that. And then they usually know the regional referral center where they can get a, you know, a really good surgeon, maybe orthopedics <laughs> right. and whatever it is, that right. they, you know, and then they usually know the tertiary center that they can send people to when they can't handle it, you know, that's got the big stuff, the burn centers and the you know, all the, the fancy toys and the, and the neurosurgeons and all that. And, and so just in that kind of way, what I think we need to do a better job of educating is people who are teaching this stuff say, hey, it's not common at the level you're teaching it or in the doses you're teaching it, but there is a non-zero number of people who might get into this territory. And so, you know, obviously they will have to make their own decisions about how much to disclose. But what I would really like is if the people teaching it got some training in this and at least how to recognize it. I think you could even give people like a page or two and say, you see any of this? You need a teacher who's got an understanding of this that maybe you don't. What's the baseline ontology we're assuming here? So obviously we're not making any great ontological claims around the realness of, you made the point about consciousness earlier. But when we're referring to, you know, the equivalent of like a regional hospital, if I rock up at a regional hospital and say, hey, I've been doing this meditation stuff and here's a bunch of emergent phenomena, Am I needing them at least to sign up to the idea of, okay, well, there's emergent practices and there's a spiritual significance to those practices and here's a bunch of phenomena. Am I needing them to sign up to that level of ontology? So significance to those practices. So all clinicians already operate at the level of symptoms, which is what patients tell them, signs, which is what they see, and then categories that they put that into. So mm -hmm. that's already something they should be signed up to is the range of human experience just by being clinicians, right? Sure. And then that signs and symptoms might have implications for somebody's health and well-being and outcomes 
should already be something that all clinical practitioners are signed on to. So it's really just a question not of fundamental clinical paradigm, but of adding more stuff to that. So, for example, Lyme disease is pattern recognition that didn't exist before some clever housewife or whatever in Connecticut was like, hey, all these kids have arthritis and all these kids got tick bites. Maybe there's a there there. Well, we think in the same kind of way. There are well-described patterns that we see that can be grouped into taxonomic and then diagnostic categories that countless people over thousands of years across traditions have thought there are cultivation and management strategies, you know, for the good and the bad that lead to benefit for patients. And so I think it's really just a question of adding some diagnostic categories and adding those to the DSM and to the Chinese and Russian and Latin American equivalents and whatever else the rest of the world uses, and ICD-10 and 11 billing codes out of the World Health Organization and to whatever the rest of the world uses, right, because not everybody uses those, and then getting these into protocols where clinicians can go, okay, you fit this pattern, we know from data that this kind of strategy adds value to care, and it can just be one more of those things that maybe we don't entirely understand what it is, but that doesn't mean we can't help you, right? I think we can, and I think we can do better. Yeah, it strikes me that one of the things this project is doing, I mean, to some big degree now, but obviously as the thing expands more and more, is giving clarity to people who basically go, well, it doesn't really feel like the thing that I've been diagnosed as because there was this extra weirdness. You know, there was this extra phenomenology and like, yeah, people say anxiety, but anxiety doesn't usually have lights shooting out your spine. Is one of the pieces of feedback you've got or was one of the motivations of the project giving people the, I don't know, the thing to hold on to? You know, people get diagnosed with stuff and go, oh, it's such a relief to get diagnosed. Is that one of the appeals here? Yeah, so that, that quality of normalization, so the quality of normalization of the possibility that what you're going through might be normal is huge for people or within the range of human experience or might even have some healing or transformative potential. This is of tremendous value. And so those of us who, like myself, I started out with weird energetic phenomena. I had no idea what the hell it was. I didn't even have language for it. I didn't tell anybody about it when I was a kid, and it was super strange. And 10 years later, I found people who had a relatively good knowledge of these things and could describe it and explain it and all that. But it is hard to explain how my heart lit up with unbelievable joy at the validation of going, oh my gosh, someone else has been through this. It wasn't just a strange thing for me. And so, you know, I have my own personal experience of how vital that validation is. And I also know plenty of people who have gotten into territory that I, from my own experience, is expert opinion level, not long-term prospective clinical trials, right? But my expert opinion is that this stuff has transformative and healing potential, even if in the short to medium term, it might be weird or challenging, right? So one dude's expert opinion on the internet, but we would like better evidence quality for that to actually do the prospective long-term outcome studies that show some of these things might have healing potential or value. And as the, the positive psychology people have been pointing out for years, wouldn't it be cool to have diagnoses like thriving, you know, you know, like, or, you know, significant upgrade in consciousness, you know, like, yeah, that's, that's so much missing from the dialogue, isn't it? <laughs> right. Not just to make people well, but to make them super well can also be a whole program. Exactly. And also to tease out nuance, 
and temporal nuance. So, you know, like immediately what might be going on with something. So this is something I do all the time when I'm talking to people about meditation stuff, again, through the lens of my own tradition, which I realize is just one limited lens, right? So, you know, not that it's the be all and end all solution and plenty of my own ideas about things may not make it through the scientific process. Right. So as we do the science, it may be that none of my maps, models or conceptions of any of this turn out to be right. Fine with that. Right. Totally fine with that. We're more interested in the science than my own biases and opinions. But, you know, from my own currently biased expert opinion, I would say that there are some some things that like, ooh, that is really cool. What happens next might suck, but ultimately that might lead to really great that is something that the clinical mainstream actually understands at certain levels. So for example, a surgery, you come in with an appendicitis, might hurt, you get a surgery, it might hurt worse. And then however we would expect from the removal of that appendix, you might do better, though some people might do really badly when they get septic or an infection or something. And also to be able to tease this out. So a lot of people present with mixed pictures where they might have gotten some really cool and amazing transformative insights, but they're also at the same time struggling. And so to be able to give both positive and negative diagnoses on a chart would be really cool and actually much more match with human experiences and I think be a lot more validating of the, of the complexity of the range of what we see. Yeah, Daniel, this is a change of pace. But you mentioned earlier, you know, different traditions have all mentioned these experiences to some degree and the phenomenology kind of plays out. I'm asking this as a terribly secular Jewish boy. Does Judaism or do the Abrahamic religions weigh in explicitly on the phenomena? Huge. And say, well, this phenomenology oh, yeah. is X. Absolutely. So there's all kinds of Kabbalistic maps, right? And the Kabbalistic, the deep dive practitioner, Kabbalistic practitioners are very aware of these things. Right. And in fact, you know, there are plenty of emergent phenomena are described in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon. Right. So channeled teachings. Right. You know, the Quran, this is a channeled teaching. That's emergent phenomena from our point of view. If you're if you're interacting with an angel who's giving you a mm. download of information that for us falls into this category of, you know, experiences that people have. Plenty of people describe channeled teachings and have across lots of religions. And, you know, so we've even got a religion named after one of these. But that's the punchline. Right. Because this is common in like as you say, the, the main religions. Sure, of course. At least in the States. Right. And then you walk up to a psychiatrist and it's like, oof, well, yeah. this seems very strange. Exactly. Despite the fact it's described ex extensively right. in the text, yeah. And has been for thousands of years. Yeah, right. So very quickly, if you'll uh, uh, forgive my shameless plug for emergence benefactors, if you're interested in supporting this stuff, please re reach out to us at either info at theeprc.org, theeprc.org, or info at ebenefactors.org. And we would be very happy to talk with you. If you have research skills, you can lend to this. If you have network connections or people you know of that might be helpful for this project. If you have ideas about how to do the science better and well and properly so that it's properly incorporated and meets the epistemological criteria of the mainstream. Or if you got a whole bunch of money or even relatively small amounts of money, we are very, that you would feel would be uh, properly given to this charity. It's a registered 501c3 charity. We are very happy to make sure that that money goes to good causes. We have nearly all of our operating expenses covered by some patrons already. And so nearly everything you would give us would go straight to program. Very excited about that. Please let us know. Um, we are happy to help further this field. And that's what we're here to do. So thank you. And 
we'll make sure on our website also we'll plug all of those links where people can find you, Daniel. Thanks. And uh, maybe you could also give us a small package of the sorts of places that people would reach out if they're having emergent phenomenology experiences and they're needing a little bit more guidance. I'm sure there's going to be some like fast and ready links that maybe we can already be getting into people's hands if they're listening today and that's something they feel they need a bit of support on. Yeah, there are a number of spiritual emergence and emergency networks out there. So your your fastest thing is just Google spiritual emergency. That's right. that's your quickest route. And then you, you'll find all kinds of resources and communities from various traditions. That's probably the fastest way to do it at the moment. And we can Great. provide some more links. Excellent. Daniel, thanks, mate. It's been delightful. Thank you so much. Well, guys, that was the Contemplative Science Podcast, and that was Daniel Ingram. So as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 